So, um, on that note, odds are uh, what we talk about tonight will generate questions. Um, that's kind of the way this goes. And don't at all feel like you have to wait for a particular time. If you've got a question that's kind of burning, feel, feel free to ask it. I'm getting some buzziness. I feel like I'm talking in a can or something. Um, feel free to ask it at any time. If I see a hand or something, I'll be, I'll be glad to take it. Uh, I don't necessarily know what the answer is, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but I'll, I'll certainly try. If it's something that I know, I'll be happy to tell you or tell you when we're going to talk about it, if it's something we're going to get into depth on. Um, but also, if I just don't know, then I'll tell you and I'll find it out. If, it, if it's something to be known, I'll dig into it and we'll get it on another night. So uh, by all means, do ask those things. Um, on the other technical note, I said I would try to remember to thank everybody that had a part in this. Um, so I want to thank my wife because she's been putting up with me for all the months that I've been working on this. Uh, it, it, it takes a little while to, to write the book and make the presentation. And once I get them written and made, I start over and do them again and do them different. <laughs> I've got three or four versions of this now. So um, she's real patient with me and I appreciate that. Uh, I really appreciate Dennis has been great. Um, he's been up here to print copies of these books and be on the phone with Xerox, which that's the big job. I'm, can you hear that? It's like a knife in my ear. There's like a really high-pitched feedback. He's getting old, so he doesn't hear it anymore. It's all that gray hair. Is that better? Okay. I can't hear myself so much, which is fine. I hear myself enough. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's good. Whatever it takes. Um, anyway, so thanks to Jenny. Thanks to Dennis. I know Dennis is on the phone with Xerox a lot, trying to get these copies out. It was a time when it looked like those things might not happen. Um, and then, of course, big thanks to uh, Melissa and Virginia for coming in and binding all those books. They did that in a day, uh, which is no small job. Um, and there's been a lot of other people that have had a hand in this. Of course, Gloria stepped up and said, you know, I want to support this. I'd be happy to watch the kids. Um, and a lot of other people along the way that have just been encouraging, and I just really appreciate that. So just, man, this, none of this stuff happens without a massive move of God and a lot of people and a lot of hands and a lot of feet. And uh, I'm really grateful for it. I hope, it's, I hope it blesses you. Um, so we start off, we're talking about apologetics tonight. So the word is Greek. It sounds like not the word you would pick because it sounds like you're apologizing for what you believe in. That is not what it means. Um, apologetics, when you go back to the Greek, it means to give a defense. So if you had a defense attorney, that would be your apologist basically. So we're preparing to be able to defend our faith. You shouldn't have to defend your faith. Your faith is enough. You have faith. God exists. I believe it. I've, I've seen things. I have had experiences with God. Great. That's cool. Um, and that's all you need. It is all you need. But there's nothing wrong with having more than that. Um, I think a lot of times, even getting started in a church with something like this, I've when you're listening to podcasts about people talking about apologetics and stuff, they'll tell you a lot of times just getting a church to let you come in and talk about this is a big deal because it's like this no-no, like, oh, well, we don't question God. And we're not questioning God, but there's nothing wrong with being a follower of God and having questions. And it's like, I think for a lot of years, the, the thinking was, or for you know decades, it was just like, well, we don't ask those kinds of questions. And I think some of it is because we worry that we'll find out something we don't want to know. 
And that's silly. I mean, if our faith is real, then we ought to know any question I can ask, God has an answer for it if I will just look. And so there's really no stone we can't unturn and know that God's right there. So, you know, hopefully we get to the questions that are kind of burning. Um, if you've got one that, that we don't get to, uh, I've already got visions of having little extra units for this thing sometime down the road where we can tackle three or four questions in a night or something if we can't get it in this particular series. So what we're looking at is just kind of getting in there and being prepared to answer those questions, the ones on our own heart, the ones on the minds and the hearts of the people that we work with and hang out with and family members and all that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to get into. I got to get my little clicker guy here. So um, the nice little piece of scripture here to defend, defending the faith Defending, defending the faith. First um, Peter chapter three says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's in you. So even in Paul's day, and, and I, absolutely in Paul and Peter and, and John's day, it was necessary to defend the faith because it was controversial then. It's controversial now. And they had to be prepared to, to put that defense up. It might have been a little bit easier for them because they'd say, remember Jesus? Yeah, I knew that guy personally, and I watched him die. And then three days later, we had lunch. So explain that. You know, we can't do that because we weren't there to see it. So the defense we have to be prepared to prepare is maybe a, a bigger step. But we can do it, and we have to do it, as the Bible says, with gentleness and respect, which means not the way it is done on Facebook, right? Like you can get in a big, nasty, hateful, charged debate with somebody, and that is going to get absolutely nowhere, but make both of you really frustrated and probably make them more resistant to anything you would have to say anyway. Jesus always was good to be patient with people, and we should do the same. Uh, you'll notice here, I've got a page five little thing. Usually down here in the bottom or up in the top, it'll tell you what page of the book that I gave you that we're on. Um, I will forget at some point to be cool with that. And I'll just say this now. There are blanks in your book because some people really like blanks. They like to be able to follow along and fill things in because that makes them happy. It makes them feel like they're being a part of it. If you are not one of those people, that is totally cool. Um, for one thing, you can cheat off somebody who, who did fill in the blanks because there's no test after this. Um, but also, you may notice on the back cover of your book, if you kind of flip that back cover open, there's like a QR code and a web address there. If you have a smartphone, um, you can scan that QR code and it'll take you right to our website where all this content is. Um, if you don't, the address is there. You can just punch it in your computer. And what you'll find, uh, a, a thing will come up asking you for a password, but it says right there, the password is defense. The reason why I put a password on it is because I don't bother to get copyright permission on all these pictures and stuff. As long as it's for education, it's totally cool. I'm not selling the book, so that's not a problem. But since it's out there on the internet where anybody could get to it, and I don't want anybody to think that we're claiming ownership of those images, I put it behind a password wall. Feel free to share the password. If you know somebody who could benefit from this stuff, feel free to share it. On the version of the book that's online, all of the answers are already filled in. So if you're one of those people who are like, I don't want to keep up with this. I don't want to write the answers in. Cool. Get them later. That's fine. It's no big deal. And I can get a paper copy that has them written in too. So that's fine. Uh, I just want to mention that before I got any further. Okay. So the whole point here is partly to be prepared to help people that don't have faith to have faith. 
And one of the things we have to realize is we really need to be patient with people because we believe some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, when you think about it, the, the things that we're asking people, imagine somebody coming from a completely different background who's always been raised to believe that everything has a natural explanation and, and we're, we're a chemical accident that happened a few million years ago and, and there is no God. For them, you're asking them to believe a fairy tale. From their perspective, it's a fairy tale. Uh, in fact, just the other day I was at school and I was teaching and I said something, we were talking, it was in psychology class and it was something about death or something. We were talking about the aging process. And I said, yeah, I'm going to die. I mean, we all are. One of these days I'll die, but I'm not going to stay that way. I'm, I've, I've got a plan. I'm going to come back. And, you know, a few of them laughed and stuff, and some of them probably didn't get it. But that's, that's the truth. I, I have a plan. I'm going to come back. I'm not going to stay dead. I have no intentions of staying dead. And to a lot of people, that would be absolutely ridiculous for me to claim that. This keeps trying to walk off my ear, so just pardon me. Um, that's crazy, right? I mean, we believe there is an all-powerful God who, like, what, sees you through his crystal ball or something? He knows what you're doing all the time. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, right? But he does. He really does. Um, we believe that we will die and we will go to some magical paradise place where there's no pain and we'll never die and we'll live forever. And that sounds pretty crazy. Um, I believe that the universe was created in six literal days, because that's what the book of Genesis says, and it's entirely plausible that that happened just a short time ago, not millions and millions of years ago. Now, if you want to stick to the millions and millions of years thing, hey, I think we can still get along, so don't just like get up and walk out and, and run away. Um, there's been a lot of indoctrination on that, um, and it, I'm not saying I wasn't there, but the Bible says it happened a certain way, and there's enough information in the Bible to trace the lineages of people back and know how long a period of time we're talking about. And that period of time is around 6,000 years. The, if we're going to take the Bible very literally, and I think it's safe to do so, then it's possible that the earth is 6,000 years old. And if that sounds crazy, okay. I think through the course of this, you will find thinking it's millions and millions of years old is equally crazy. I think. I think you'll find that. If you don't, that's cool. I think we can still get along. But, um, and I don't think that's contingent upon anybody's salvation. But I'm going to take the Bible at its word because I think I can. Um, we also believe that everybody but eight people and some animals died in a flood, and that's pretty wild. And we believe that Jesus was God and died and then brought himself back from the dead and is going to do the same for all of us. And for us, that's probably like, yeah, duh, Christian 101. But for people who don't know what this stuff is about and believe it or not, there's a lot of people in our own town and maybe this was you even just a month ago, don't have never heard of that stuff or think that's absolutely crazy. So yeah, be patient with people. Don't expect them the first time you talk to them about it to be cool about swallowing all this because it's a lot, right? It's a lot. Um, I also want to remind everybody just before we dive in too deep, we're going to talk about a lot of nerdy, brainy, logic-y stuff through the course of this and especially tonight. Brain stuff and logic stuff and thinking this out and doing the science is all cool, but ultimately, you know, the Bible reminds us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. We have to believe that he exists. 
And that's a big job to do. And your faith is the most important thing you have and it'll carry you through anything. Um, so that's what we want to anchor to is our faith. But it doesn't hurt to have the good brain stuff too. Okay, so let's get into it. Part one, uh, how do we know God exists? We're going to look at four arguments today. The terminology is a little bit intimidating because it's like teleological argument, cosmological argument, axiological argument, metaphysical. And those words are big and they have lots of syllables in them and they're very intimidating, which is cool because you can use them on people, but probably that's not the best way to talk about it. So we'll, we'll use more common language. The reason why I put the big long word in there is because that's what people use and there's no harm in knowing the word, uh, even if you don't intend to really use it, you know, yourself in common parlance and that's fine. Um, I also want you to know, and I think this is the last thing before we kind of kick into the actual arguments. There is a difference between science, what science really is, and what some of the stuff we're going to challenge with the things that we're talking about is. Naturalism, as you'll find out later in the book, the way I have it written, is it's a religion without a God. Naturalism and science are not the same thing, but they are often presented that way, that everything has a natural cause and explanation. And I can tell you 100% for certain, there is no natural explanation for all of this. There isn't one. And any scientist worth their salt will tell you that's the truth. And I've got some quotes later in another day that we'll get to that basically says, if you think that even the Big Bang actually explains how we got here, you're wrong. We don't know how we got here because what happened right before that, we don't know what that is. Nobody knows what that is. And if anybody tells you they know, it's a bedtime story, I think was the way that the scientists put it. That's right. There is no natural explanation. I propose there is a supernatural explanation and that God gave it to us. I don't think that's unreasonable. So science is not at odds with Christianity. Naturalism is what we're actually fighting against. So uh, Christians and naturalists, we look at the same evidence and we draw different conclusions because of our worldview. Now you'll notice the words evidence and conclusions and worldview are orange and bold and underlined. And anytime you see any text that's orange and bold and underlined, that's a thing you can write in your book. There's a blank there. So on page eight or nine there, you'll see it says Christians and naturalists look at the same blank and draw a different blank because of our blank. Again, if you wanna write it in, cool. If you don't wanna write it in, you can get it later. It's online, no big deal. So just to explain this, um, Christian scientists, we like evidence. And I say we as though I'm one of them, but you, you get what I mean. Like, evidence is good. We want to look at evidence. We want to look at dinosaur bones. We want to look at rock layers. We want to look at archaeological digs because we can feel confident that the stuff we're going to find is totally going to jive with what the Bible tells us. But if you come into it already expecting a billion-year timeline, you're going to see it differently than somebody who comes into it with a different timeline. When Jennifer and I, like summer, like summer break, I get to be home a lot because I'm a teacher, so it's pretty handy. And at summer, Carter and I spend all day together, and he comes in complaining about something like, oh, Dad, my foot hurts. I'm like, yeah, dude, whatever. Just deal with it. Like, it's... He's brought me like 552 things today, and I'm not worried about the foot, right? Because it's probably nothing. 
And then, you know, and I'm trying to cook dinner or something, get dinner ready because Jennifer's about to come home. And he's like, oh, dad, my foot. I'm like, dude, just deal with it, okay? It's not a big deal. And then Jennifer comes in and she's, mommy, my foot hurts. And she's just, what? What's going on? You've got to stop everything. What's wrong with his foot? And she's like, did, you, did, did he tell you something was wrong with his foot? I'm like, he's told me something's wrong with everything, like every 28 minutes today. I'm just making it up. But, you know, so you guys know what I'm talking about. We have different perspectives because our worldview is different. She just came from the bank and she comes home and this whole family thing is like, it just happened. And for me, I've been dealing with this all day. I see it differently. Same evidence, he said it hurt. I just didn't believe him. And then she pops his shoe off and pulls the sock off and what do you know, it was a big bloody flap of skin or something. Yeah, I bet that did hurt. And now I feel about that big, right? Because he told me it hurt, right? We looked at the same evidence and we drew a different conclusion based on the way we came at it. And so I look at rock layers and I say, wow, flood deposit. Look at all those fossils. All those critters died in the flood and were deposited in different layers. And a geologist who believes in a bajillion year timeline comes in and says, oh, this is a Precambrian layer and it's 280 million years old. Okay, same evidence, different conclusion because I believe a flood buried everything and you think it happened over billions of years. We'll talk about that later, much later. Um, Okay, so really the debate is naturalism and Christianity because science is observable and testable. I need a thing. I have a thing in my pocket. Flash drive, don't break. This is science. Wait for it. There you go. Wait, wait. Testable hypothesis. I hypothesize if I drop it, it'll fall. It did it. Let's try it again. Good hypothesis. That works out. Every time I drop it, it falls. Gravity, science. Inertia, science. If I chuck this thing across the room, I'm not going to do that. There is some good stuff on there. Um, If I chuck this thing across the room and I was Mr. Hummel and I knew how to do it, I could tell you how far it was going to fly and when it was going to fall because of mass and resistance and all this kind of stuff. Um, because we can figure that out. That is science. Saying that a giant explosion moved all the planet, that's not science. That is a theoretical construct. It's naturalism. And we don't actually know because we weren't there. We can look at this evidence and say, the way I look at this evidence makes me think this happened. But somebody with a different perspective can do it equally scientific examination and come to a completely different conclusion. And if you don't think that's right, just read a science magazine and five years, read it another one. They will have changed their mind about everything because the evidence is analyzed differently. I just read something the other day. We've been talking about black holes and dark matter and stuff for a long time. I read something like a year ago that said, I think Einstein was wrong and all that stuff's not right. Okay, maybe that's right. Maybe we've been wrong all this time. We change our mind all the time, but God's word does not change. It's always been right, and I believe it's right now. Okay, so let's get into some arguments. Teleological argument sounds fancy. All it means is design. There is evidence of a designer. So I look at the world around me and I say, wow, God's handiwork is everywhere. And somebody else looks at it and says, this is a really cool chemical accident. I don't buy that, but whatever. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I can look at the way plants breathe in carbon dioxide that I breathe out and turn it back into oxygen and I can say, that was cool, God. You created a recycling system so that I was guaranteed to have oxygen. I can look at a creature that gets a disease and dies and has this horrible infectious disease and a vulture eats it up and completely eradicates the disease. And I can say, God, that was cool. To me, the evidence of the creator is obvious. He made a recycling system. He built it right in. We are without excuse. If you never heard of God, if nobody ever told you about it, if you never had access to a Bible, you ought to know God exists just by looking around you. It should be obvious. That's what the Bible says. Okay, so let's get into some fact stuff. Would you believe that Mount Rushmore was the product of erosion? Is that a natural formation? Did anybody ever go to the south? The, the, this thing's driving me crazy. I don't know how you do this. There, is that better? Okay. It's just like slipping off. Um, did anybody ever go to South Dakota and go, wow, I cannot believe nature produced that. What's the odds? Looks just like George Washington. I mean, wow, the resemblance is uncanny. What's the odds? The odds are really not good, right? Like that didn't happen. You know it. And I've heard there's an old uh, apologist thing. It's like you're digging a hole and then you come across a pocket watch that's partially buried and you can see all the little gears. You can't see the whole watch. You can just see the gears like, whoa, look at that crystal formation. How cool is that? What a neat natural form. Nobody says that. You look at a clock and you see all the gears working in perfect harmony and you know an intelligent being is at hand here. And I can look at Mount Rushmore and I can say somebody, some artist really put some time in on this thing. Nobody thinks that just happened by accident. Church, your parts are so much more impressive than Mount Rushmore or a clock. Your DNA and RNA and all the genetic stuff that has to happen for you to even exist, the fact that you can cut yourself and watch it heal back up, that is not, that is more impressive than a clock. That is more impressive than Mount Rushmore. It is more complex. And it didn't happen by chemical accident. It happened by design. The evidence of a designer is obvious. There are clear clues all around. Evolution says chance is the primary operator. The reason why your skin heals when you cut it is because that was the dice roll. I don't think that's right. I don't think chance could produce that. Not even in a billion, billion, billion years could that chance produce that kind of convenient system. I think the hand of a designer is apparent. The, the, the thing that science, the naturalist method does is they say, well, over the course of millions of years, or as I call it, abracadabra chameleons of years. It, this doesn't make sense. You're telling me that a dinosaur turned into a bird and a bird turned into a dog and a dog turned into a chimpanzee. Well, over millions of years. Oh, over millions of years. Right? Like, come on. No, it didn't happen at all. It didn't happen that way. That's stupid. 
Millions of years does not explain what you're trying to explain to me. In a million years, that would never happen. Not once. No way. I don't believe it. Okay, so let's get into some technical stuff. Language and intelligent being also go in your book on page 11. If you want to go ahead and write those in. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Every cell in your body, whether it's in your hair or your toenail or your skin or your eyeball or whatever, contains DNA. Your full blueprint is in there. Uh, And that's true for plants and animals and all kinds of things here on earth. You crack it open and look down in the cell and there's DNA in there. That DNA is a coded language. It's code, just like computer code is code. It is written... Uh, our computers are binary, ones and zeros. Everything you do on your computer is communicated with a one or a zero. Now, we don't know that because the computer takes care of a lot of the stuff for us, but it's all ones and zeros. Your DNA has four code parts to it. It's not ones and zeros. It's adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, you know, biology stuff. Your DNA is a code and it's read just like computer code. Computer code is read by software. Your DNA is read by other parts of your body. That's amazing. And it implies, it demands we pay attention to the fact that intelligence is required to do that. Languages do not happen by accident. Imagine this. I take a package of thin spaghetti noodles and I crack them into lots, you know, you break them, break them into little pieces and then just chuck them down the aisle. And out of the pieces, they just fall in such an order that there's a repeating pattern of characters. Not English letters, that would be crazy, right? But something like, I don't know, the Greek alphabet or something. (laughs) You know, like a repeating, that's not gonna happen. That's never gonna happen. How many times would I have to gather up broken spaghetti pieces and dump them on the ground and pick them up and dump them and pick them up and dump them before they fall into a sentence that has meaning? I don't think it's ever gonna happen. I don't think in a million years of me picking those things up and tossing them just as fast as I can pick them up and toss them, I don't think that'll ever happen. And that's essentially what we are being asked to believe, that DNA happened by chemical accident. I don't think so. It's a language and it's complex and it follows the rules of language. You will never see DNA link up in a way other than the way it was intended to link up. There's only certain ways it works because it follows rules. Where did the rules come from? Probably the guy that wrote the code, be my guess. DNA demands that we see an intelligent being in it. Languages do not occur by accident. Languages have to be a product of intelligence. You were created in the image of God. You would create a, if you were born on an island all by yourself, you would create a language all by yourself. If you had another person on that island, you would learn to communicate with each other and you would create your own language. It is built into you to communicate by language. That's a mark of God that you bear. DNA is a language and God made it and it's cool. You could spend a whole session just talking about DNA. Of course, I'm not gonna do that. Check this out. The universe is so patterned, so logical, way before we ever discovered all the elements on the periodic table, a guy named Mendeleev said, I'm noticing something. There seems to be a pattern developing here. If I take these 
materials and I kind of lay them out, I'm noticing there's repeating patterns. I bet this is a gas, this is a gas, got some other things, got some metals, and then it goes back to gas, and then the next one's gas. I think if I lay these things out, and he lays them out, and there were materials on the periodic table we had not discovered yet or they hadn't been lab created yet, and so there were gaps. As he's assembling this table, he sees there's a gap here. Right underneath aluminum, there's a hole, and we don't have an element for that. But judging by the way this thing's laying out, I think if there was an element there, because it's right below aluminum, let's just call it Eka aluminum for now, it would have an atomic weight of 68 and a volume of 11.5, if it existed. And then some way down the road, decades later, we find what we then later call gallium, which has almost exactly the atomic weight and volume that he predicted it would have, because it's predictable and orderly. Same thing with uh, Eka boron, which is scandium and germanium. When he proposed germanium, not only did he know that it would have an atomic weight of 72, he knew it would pair with oxygen, he knew it would pair with chloride and fluoride, he knew it would boil at 160 degrees in ethyl alcohol. What? Now, he's a lot smarter than us in that way, I guess. I couldn't imagine that. That's how regular the periodic table is. So you're telling me that a bajillion years ago, a bunch of junk exploded and arranged itself in a pattern so regular that I could predict elements I hadn't even found before? What? If I took the broken spaghetti noodles that I chucked down the aisle and I looked at them and I said, okay, I see a pattern here. I bet down there by Wayne's chair, I'm gonna find spaghetti noodles in the shape of a K. Does that make, is that logical? No, if I walked down to Wayne's chair, would I find him? Not unless he arranged them before I got there. That's stupid. I cannot make predictions about things born of chaos. This was not born of chaos. It was born of an orderly system that was created by somebody who was smart and who wanted us to find the patterns and know the creator. Not guess it came from a chemical accident, that's ridiculous. The periodic table, here's where you can write things in, is so regular we could predict the elements. Laws of gravity and inertia govern the universe. Govern the universe. The universe plays by the rules that God set into motion. We can look at a distant solar system and say, there's a planet in there that we can't see, but we know it's there. Because look at the way the other planets are behaving. See how that orbit like wobbles? There's another planet in there and we just can't see it. And when it gets to right that spot, it pulls that planet, just watch. On October 23rd, it'll wobble. And then it does. Yep, see, there's a planet there. And then later we can see the planet. We're like, oh, yep, there it was. Knew it all along. How, do, how does that work? Well, because the, the universe operates along an orderly system. Why would a, a, a universe born out of a chaotic explosion and a chemical accident have regular, predictable stuff in it? It doesn't make sense. My spaghetti noodles would not be regular or orderly. Math. We can use math to predict all kinds of things. We can predict the weather. We can predict the movement of heavenly bodies. Should we expect this much order out of chaos? No. It, there's an implication of design. 
we look at animals, if we want to know, how is this chemical going to work on a human being? If we want to test a drug or a, something like that, we can say, well, it's not ethical to pop somebody's head open and start poking around in there. So what we do is we experiment on a mouse. Mice and humans don't obviously have a lot in common. They don't look like they'd have a lot in common, but surprise, surprise, their brains work pretty similar. And so if it works for a mouse, it'll probably work for a person. Now, an evolutionist will tell you, well, that's because we have a shared ancestor. Okay. My great, 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 great grandfather was a mouse. Good to know. I didn't know that. Like to, that's why I like cheese so much. It, it all falls into place. Now I get it. That, obviously not. I don't think we have a shared ancestor. I think we have a shared creator. And he had a best practice, and he made a system that worked, and he said, I'm just going to use this all over the place. This is the best way to do it, and I'm going to do it everywhere. When I find out a good joint for wood that's good, like I bought, a, a, my, actually, it was bought for me, a Craig jig. Man, now that I got a Craig jig, everything gets a Craig joint. Why? It's strong. It's a strong joint. So I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it on everything I build. Why? Because it works. God made a system and he uses it everywhere because it works. Most animals have something in common with some other animal because it's a working system. And there are animals that possess qualities that absolutely imply design and absolutely could not have happened through an evolutionary accident. A couple of them that I can think of real quick I can share with you. There's an article in your book on the next page, I think, about the giraffe. Um, so basically, to put it really simply, giraffes have really long necks. What? I know. Crazy, right? Gir giraffes have really long necks. If they evolve, that either means other, other critters had long necks and theirs got shorter, or they had short necks and theirs got longer. That's the only logical thing, right? I mean, it didn't just, it wasn't just one day a camel had a baby and pff, it's got a neck that's five feet long. And then it has babies that have five foot long. That's stupid. That doesn't happen. Believe it or not, there is some stuff going on in science right now that's essentially proposing that. That like a dinosaur laid an egg and a bird came out of the egg. We'll talk about that later. So, yeah, that, it doesn't, it had to go over time. Okay, so cool. The first, here's the idea behind evolution in case you didn't know. The first giraffe that evolves a slightly longer neck has an advantage because he can reach leaves in the trees that are a little bit higher. So he's got more to eat. So, the guy with the most to eat gets the most ladies and has the most babies, and they all have long necks. Oh, isn't that great? That's the way it works. Okay, cool. Here's the problem. Sooner or later, your neck gets so long that you dip down to get a drink, and you pass out because there's so much blood in your neck that it rushes to your brain, and it knocks you out. That is not an evolutionary advantage. That is a disadvantage. I'm going to say first giraffe to evolve a neck so long that taking a drink, knocked it out, got eight real quick. And it did not pass its genes on to its children. And if it did, its children got eight and they did not pass their genes on to their children. So how do you explain that long neck? I mean, the way, a, the way it actually works, a giraffe leans down to take a drink, a valve in its heart and a valve near its brain shut off to stop the rush of blood, it gets a drink, it comes back up, and the valves reopen. Now, how did that five-step process all evolve at one time? Well, how convenient. 
Well, you know, in a million years, anything's possible. I don't think so. I think that implies creation. And as I said to the kids, you know, supposedly dinosaurs evolved from birds or birds evolved from dinosaurs or whatever. We're expected to believe a critter that did not fly gained the ability to fly. Where'd the wings come from? So the first critter to get two little nubs that didn't do anything was like, yeah, those are handy. I'm going to keep those. And passed them on and passed them on. And eventually one of them grew a feather and was like, (laughs) right? That gets you eaten. It does not make you more successful. Where did the wings come from? One dinosaur was just born. Hey, Charlie's got wings. That's awesome. I want some. No, it doesn't happen that way. How did that happen? I don't know. There's no explanation for it. There's no transition fossil for it. You go digging for dinosaur fossils, you will never find the half-winged velociraptor because it doesn't exist. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? You would think you would find one sooner or later, but you don't. How come? Because it didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. Birds are fascinating. If you, people will say sometimes, man, I wish I could fly like a bird. I don't. I don't want to run. Running sucks. I will only run if I'm being chased by something that will eat me. That's the only reason to run. I don't even run for health. I'll just die, I guess. I don't know. I just can't do it. I just can't bring myself to do it. Birds are working super hard. Like you're one that was flying into the wind today. (laughs) I don't want to do that. That looks like a lot of work. It's so much work that if a bird had lungs like yours, it would die. Birds breathe in constantly, all the time. The way a bird's lungs work, every time they flap their wings, they breathe in. And while they're breathing in, they're also breathing out at the same time. They have four lungs, basically, parts. They have a sac that holds air. I breathe in. As I breathe in, this sac fills up. This sac comes out. On my next breath, which is all the time, this sac empties down into here and exchanges the oxygen into the blood, and then it comes over here, and then it goes into this sac, and then it goes back out. So each time breath comes into a bird, things move one step in the cycle. So they have a constant flow of oxygen so that their muscles can do what they need to do so they can fly. How did that evolve in steps? The first bird to have a traditional lung just doesn't fly. It just doesn't fly. I wonder what turkey lungs look like. I just had that thought. I don't know. It's it's messed up. I don't know. Here's another thing to think about. And I kind of mentioned this before. How cooperative is this earth? It's so cool. I breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants turn it into oxygen. Something dies. Vultures eat it. Kill the bacteria. It's so cool the way that works. Almost like it was designed with all these little parts. Just like a clock. I've got one gear that moves the hour hand, and I've got a gear that moves the minute hand, I've got a gear that moves the second hand, and I've got these gears that step everything down so one power source can generate the different rotations needed to do all those processes. It took a lot of thinking and a lot of cooperative systems for that to work, just like Earth, except the Earth is like 70 bajillion clocks all put together. Yeah, all that interaction, man, that just implies design to me. I don't see that. Siri is talking to me. I don't see that happening by accident. Nature works together too well for that. 
And God knew we would have this question, so he put it in the Bible. Just ask the beasts, and they'll tell you. Ask the birds, and they'll tell you. Ask the fish, and they will tell you. The hand of the Lord has done this. It didn't happen by accident. Cosmological argument. I'm going to move a little quicker here. Everything has a cause. You already knew that, didn't you? My cause was the union of Mike and Renee Knapp. They have causes too. And you could just keep going all the way back to the beginning of time if ancestry would take us back that far. Ooh, I have a leaf. <laughs> it ain't going to get me all the way back to year zero, folks. Everything has a cause. If you follow the chain of causes and effects back, you will eventually arrive at the beginning. So what is the beginning? According to science, naturalism, the beginning is the Big Bang. And it was a big bang, so much bigger than you realize, bigger than I realized, bigger than I realized until about a week ago. I'll talk about that another day. But I was doing the math. Wow, it's a big bang. It's a real big bang. Way big. Here's what I think. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the world was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw that it was good. And he divided the day from the light, from the darkness. And the light he called day and the dark he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. First day. Just like that. That's how I think it happened. Because that's what the Bible says. That is the beginning. It was not a big bang. It was God moving upon the face of the waters and speaking light into existence. What caused the big bang? Like, that's supposed to be the start. Okay, cool. Where'd the big bang come from? What blew up exactly? Well, I don't know. Me neither. It's a mystery. In the beginning, there was stuff. I don't know. And it blew up for some reason. Or in the beginning, there was God. Well, where did God come from? I don't know. Where'd your bang come from? I don't know. Seems like we're on equal ground, doesn't it? I just read the other day, the Big Bang was a bunch of stuff, and at the beginning, it was just the size of a peach. A peach, it used to be a period. It's getting bigger. It used to be a period. A few years ago in the science book, it was a period. Now it's peach. In the beginning, there was the peach. Or in the beginning, there was God. Either way, you can't explain anything before that. Here's the thing. If I'm going to be logical, every, every, everything needs a cause, that argument never ends. Where's the first cause? There, is, there can't be one. From a naturalist perspective, there can't be a first cause. What would that be? It would be God. God does not need a cause. He told you that. I am. That's my name. I am. What does that mean? It means he just is. He doesn't get caused. I was, I am, I will be. Does it make sense? I don't need a cause. I don't get caused. Cause and effect does not apply to God because he does not exist bound by anything, including cause and effect. So it works. The first law of thermodynamics says... You can never create matter. You can never create energy. Cool. I like that rule. You burn a log. It looks like it disappears, but guess what? It doesn't really. 
It just changes forms. You learned that in science class. If you could take the heat and the light and the ash and the smoke and add it all up, you'd find you got just as much stuff as you had when you had a log. It just changes forms. Cool. Where did the matter come from? I don't know. I know. God made it. God said. Fill in the dot. Right? Where does the matter come from? Where does the energy come from? The sun has enough energy to run every living system on this planet. If anybody says, I got a solar car. Yeah, me too. A plant received energy from the sun, and then it died, and then it turned into oil, and I put it in my car, and it's solar powered. Everything on this earth is solar powered. Where did all the sun energy come from? The sun. Where'd the sun come from? Big bang. Woo, there's a lot of suns out there. That's a lot of energy. Where did it come from? Big, big bang. Okay. Okay. It's cute. It's sweet that you say that. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Second law of thermodynamics. The pillars are crumbling here, folks. The scientific explanation, the naturalist explanation is not making a lot of sense. There's a lot of matter out there and there's a lot of energy. Where did it come from? We don't know. We got another problem. The second law of thermodynamics. These are laws, folks. These work every time. Everything tends toward disorder. You know this. Drive by Midwest Truck Stop. How long has Midwest Truck Stop been out of business? I ate giant pancakes there when I was in high school. Like we went after work and ate giant pancakes at Midwest Truck Stop. And now it looks like something from like the book of Eli, right? It's like Terminator Apocalypse 5 or something. Like it's just falling apart. There's trees growing out of the top of it. Yeah, because you build something and it falls down. All things tend toward disorder. Things just fall apart. They don't come magically together. Okay, where did stars come from? They came magically together. I think things tend towards disorder. An orderly being created order, and over time, the order becomes less orderly. That makes sense. We've never, ever seen things just magically come together and form a thing. And yet, we assume that's how things happened. That doesn't make sense. According to the naturalist, and you've heard this all the time, you're the problem, you're the cancer, you're the thing that's tearing this planet up because you are destroying everything by existing. And if you believe that the universe was caused by a big bang, you're right. Because everything that's matter today will eventually be broken down until it's just dust and energy. There's a lot of universe. When I eat something, I generate heat and energy. And my heat and energy will dissipate into the room and you won't even feel it, but it's there. And it'll eventually emanate out into space. But man, there's a lot of cold space out there. When we're all dead and gone, space will have gone up like a degree or something. And that's it. And that's how the universe ends. Everything breaks down. Every time you eat a pancake, you hasten the end of the universe. Because you're breaking everything down into heat and energy. Oh my, you are an agent of chaos and you're just destroying everything. God didn't say that. God said, I created you in my image. And I bring order from chaos. Boom. You know what happens to a forest when it's completely unmanaged? 
it gets wild and woolly and it gets scrubby brush in it. And eventually, pretty much nothing can live in it. And then it rots and dies. And if a man or woman, you know what I mean when I say man, okay? I'm not being sexist. Manages the forest and cuts the brush out and keeps it nice and clear, everything, the trees, the plants, the critters, the ticks, they all thrive better under our management. But the word on the street is, we're the problem. I don't think so. I think we're the solution to the problem. I think we bring order from chaos. I think we see a problem down the road and we make steps to fix it. I think that's the way it really works. I don't think you're an order, you're an agent of chaos. I think you're an agent of order. We're trying to use our own brain to figure out how everything works. If I took a brand new guitar and I bought it and it it's totally out of tune, and I'm like, this E string sounds good. I can hold a particular fret on one string and tune the next string, and then tune the next string and tune the next string and tune the next string, and I strum it, and it sounds okay because it's in tune with itself. But then if I go to play a key on the piano and I play my guitar, wah, 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 because I didn't tune it to something beyond itself. I tuned it to itself. The guitar sounds good when I'm playing it alone, but it's not tuned to a higher order. I didn't consult a higher order. I just tuned it to itself. When I use my own brain to figure out how my own brain got here, I'm tuning to myself. I've got to tune to something greater than me. And that's God. God's the only thing out there greater than us. I can't tune to a deer. He don't know. I got to tune to something greater than me, and that's God. And he gave us, he told us, it's in the book. If I want to hit my time, I got 10 minutes. I think I can do it. Did you know it is never under any circumstances okay, morally justifiable in any culture at any time to kill just for sport, just to do it, just for fun? It's never okay. Now, that's not to say there's never a justifiable reason to kill. Sometimes kill people who are trying to kill people. I'm not getting into that. I'm saying it's never okay to just kill for fun. Everybody knows that. Every culture on earth abides by that. How come? Cats kill for fun. You ever seen a cat play with a mouse? You ever watch a coyote flip a little critter up in the air and just, and they don't even eat it. They just kill it to kill it. We don't do that. We're not supposed to. If you did, you'd know you weren't supposed to. You got that little voice in your head that says, you're not supposed to do that. Where did that voice come from? It is not a product of evolution because everything else is a product of evolution too and it does not abide that way. You're created in the image of God and you know it's wrong. Why? There's a higher moral authority that you answer to. Even if you don't believe in God, you know you've got that voice in you. Where'd that voice come from? It is not a product of evolution. It is not in your DNA. They've tested that. They've looked at babies and they do these little tests and I could explain it to you, but it'd take a lot of time and it's probably not worth it. But just know, they do these tests with little bitty, very, very young children to see, do they have like morals built in? No, babies are selfish. You knew that, you had them, you've raised them. They can only think of themselves. It's not because they're terrible, it's because they're made that way. That's all they can do is just look out for themselves. They'll learn morality down the road if you teach it to them. Right? 
there are absolute rights and wrongs, and we know that. Where did it come from? It wasn't born into you, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint. It's not in your DNA. We're not going to go through the DNA and find it. It's not even culturally defined. Some people say, well, morality just comes from your culture. Okay, I bet there's somebody in Nazi Germany who said, I don't think we should be killing all these people. And sooner or later, probably one of them stood up and said so. I don't think we should be killing all these people. Well, what culture did they grow up in? They grew up in Nazi Germany culture where it was perfectly acceptable to kill these people. Where did they get that crazy idea that it wasn't okay? Because they have a moral standard that is higher than their culture. God gave it to them. Cats don't have it. And chickens don't have it. And whales don't have it. Only people have it. Because only people were created in God's image. Our standard of morality comes from God. According to naturalists, we make our own standard. You do you. You do what's right for you. What's right for you may not be what's right for me. Oh, really? That's interesting. Four plus four is eight. Oh, not for me. No. For me, four plus four is nine because I have my own truth. Okay. Let's see where that goes in math class. Try out your own truth. See how far that gets you. Try engineering something with your math. See how that works out. We understand that mathematics has a universal truth. It comes from somewhere. And if I say four plus four is nine, the engine block I just machined is not going to function properly because the tolerances are all wrong. Right. Morality works the same way. It's just wrong. Wrong is wrong. How come? God made it that way. We make our own standard, but we know that's not right. I already said that. I've got a question in there somewhere. There's like a little blank under there on page 15 that says morality is subjective. People say that. Morality is subjective. Morality is what you make it. You can't impose your morality on me. You say it's wrong to kill and steal. You say the Bible says that homosexual unions are not okay. But I say it's different for me than it is for you. Okay. You can't impose your morality on me. I can't impose my morality on you. That's a moral statement. So you said that I can't impose my morality on you, which means you're imposing the morality that generated that thought on me. That's circular reasoning. Your morality is higher than my morality because your morality lets you do whatever you want, I guess. I don't know. All I know is God made me, God made the rules, and I have to follow them, even if they don't make sense. Even if I want to think, yeah, you know, whatever. Just love who you want to love and marry who you want to marry. I can't in good conscience do that because God said that's not the way it's supposed to work. Sorry, that's just not the way it's supposed to work. That's what God said. Four plus four can't be nine. It just can't. You know, just can't do it. Okay, metaphysical argument. This is the last one, and it's the quickest one. So I'm going to make it tonight, and I'm proud of myself. I think I spent like three days on this with the teenager, so you're lucky. I went quick. You can't disprove God, which isn't all that impressive of a statement. You can't disprove a lot of things. Dennis was throwing the Easter bunny under the bus a couple of weeks ago. I can't disprove him. 
because I can't check everywhere. It's always a chance there's a hole somewhere he dug into and I just ain't seen him, right? I can't disprove him. Okay, you can't disprove God. Well, that's not that impressive. But here's the thing. You realize when you go down this path, the flawed nature of man's logic. We think we're pretty smart. We think we're pretty special. We think we're pretty cool. But the truth is, we don't know that much. And no matter what we think we know and what we think we figured out and how we've ironed out all the details of how all this came to be, the truth of the matter is our logic is just not very good. It's just not real reliable. We're kind of tuning our guitar to ourselves, and we just have to realize that there are unanswerable questions. Even in really high, cool math stuff, there's questions that we can't answer. We're supposed to be able to do anything with math because math is like the highest form of human logic. But even math can't answer every question. And I'll prove that to you. I have a video that I'm not going to show. It's like nine minutes long, but let me bend your brain for just a second here. Bear with me. Would you agree that there are an infinite number of odd numbers? Seems fair. You think of an odd number, I'll come up with the next one. And then you think of another odd number, and I'll come up with the next one. You know, after 25 comes 27. And after 25 million comes 27 million, right? And just keep going as long as you want to go. There are an infinite number of odd numbers, okay? But there are also an infinite number of just numbers, So is the infinite number of numbers bigger than the infinite number of odd numbers? My brain hurts. Like what? I know that numbers are infinite, but this infinity has to be bigger than this infinity, doesn't it? I don't know. Okay. You don't have to understand that. I don't understand it either. Here's the point. Mathematicians argue about this kind of stuff because they don't have anything else to do because they figured all the other stuff out already because they're so dadgum smart. They call this the continuum hypothesis. No matter, and there's a lot of technicality stuff to it and decimals and fractions and big charts and all kinds of stuff. But the point is, there's mathematicians who said there seem to be infinities of different sizes. An infinity of infinities of different sizes. And apparently, if you waste a lot of time thinking about this, you can come up with these proofs. A guy named Kurt Girdle, I know his name looks like Godel, but it's pronounced Girdle. I don't know why. Language is confusing. He finally, you ever seen that scene in a movie where there's like a guy and he's like, he hasn't slept in three or four days and he's got a chalkboard that no one could possibly reach the top of, but somehow he's done math up there. I don't really fully get it. Or they're writing on glass. Who does that? Writing math on glass. But anyway, they're writing this thing and, oh, they're just going. It's just like fever pitch and there's all these numbers and letters and parentheses and stuff. Like, I've done it right there. There's one of those somewhere, for real, a real one of those chalkboards. And this guy got to the end of it and said, I've done it, I've proven it. The continuum hypothesis can never be proven true. That doesn't mean that it's definitely false, but you cannot prove that it's true, that there are infinities of different sizes. It can never be proven true. Oh, well, then that seems to settle the question. But then, sometime later, Paul Cohen comes out and proves that you can't prove that it's false. Dead gummit. I thought we had that figured out. I've been really staying up nights worrying about this too, so this is really bothering me. Now, here's the point. I say all that to say this. Even math can't answer the questions. There's no math for God. 
and that's okay, because there's not even math for infinite numbers. We ran out of math a long time ago and started putting letters in there to confuse high school children. It's okay. If you take an atheist, somebody who claims to be an atheist, and they say, there is no God, you can say, you cannot have that, you're not allowed to have that position. I wouldn't start with that. That's not a good conversation starter. But really, atheism is illogical, and here's why. They are making a certain statement, there is no God. You can't say that. You don't know. Do you, do you know everything? Where were you when I was making the world, Job? As Dennis was saying this morning, I don't remember asking you when I laid the foundations of the world. You don't know everything. Isn't it possible there's a hole somewhere with Easter Bunny in it? I guess it's possible. It seems illogical, but I guess it's... I have to admit, there is a possibility, ever so small. Cool. You have to admit that just beyond what you know, God could be there. Here's a circle. And in this circle, this blue circle, is everything that can possibly be known. And you just have your atheist friend come up and say, now you draw a circle inside that circle of how much you know. And they're real cocky, so they'll make a big circle like this. I'm just kidding. It's just, I needed a circle you could see. Here's the circle of stuff that mankind has figured out. Out of all the things that can be known, this little orange circle is what we actually know. Okay, so maybe God's outside the orange circle, but inside the blue circle. It's possible, right? You're no longer an atheist. You just graduated. Now you're agnostic. You're not sure that there's not a God, but you're pretty sure. Okay, that's a step in the right direction. You're one step closer to believing in God. You admit, I can't just say he doesn't exist, because we don't know that, he's not, that he doesn't exist. It's not a viable argument. But I, I want to be careful to say something to you. Some people who get real good at arguing this stuff says, oh, what you're saying is a God of the gaps. Anytime there's a gap in thinking, oh, well, that's where God is. I'm not saying that. I don't think we serve a God of the gaps that I just have to find a place where you don't know about something and say, oh, well, that's where God is. I don't believe in that. I think God's bigger than that. And I think God essentially can be proven to exist as much as we can prove anything that we can't see, right? Um, so I want to be careful about that. We go into an argument understanding before we ever started, I came into this argument already believing in God. That's, that's my baggage. But you came into this argument believing that he didn't exist. So really, you're making the same assumption I am, just in the opposite direction. Let's get together on this thing and just admit there's a possibility. That's a step in the right direction, right? I mean, at least there's a possibility. Next time... I only went five minutes over, not too bad. Uh, next time, we'll get into how did we get the Bible. Just to give you like a really quick idea of what that's going to be, um, the Bible did not fall from heaven. And we were just like, whoa, what's this? And we cracked it open and God's word was there complete from Genesis to Revelation. It didn't happen that way. I got a spoiler alert for you. People wrote it like human beings, like God did not etch it into tablets like he did the Ten Commandments. So uh, people wrote it. Does that, is it reliable? I got it. Spoiler alert. Yes, it is. It's very, very reliable. I'm going to talk to you about how the Bible came to be, how we got all the Bible books we have, why the ones we have are the ones we have, and why the ones we don't, we don't. 
and all that good stuff. And I, can, I think I can really build an argument for you that lets you know, not only is the Bible a reliable, historic book, it is the most reliable, historic book ever written. And I'm not saying that just from a religious standpoint. I'm saying if you do the statistics, you will find the Bible is more reliable than any ancient text ever. And it's more verifiable and it's more provable. And if that's true, if the Bible is so reliable that it's more reliable than any other book ever, then the things in it probably true. And that means all that crazy stuff about like going to heaven when we die and God knowing everything is also true, which is really comforting because that's kind of what we're operating on, right? <laughs> okay. Um, so what, what I want to do um, now that we're officially out of time, we have coffee brewing in the lobby. You might be able to smell it. We have cookies out there. Um, I would like very much if anybody has a question to answer it, but I would also like to give everybody a chance to have coffee and cookies. So if you're like, I'm done, I need to go home, cool. Pack up your stuff and go, that's fine, you can do that. Although I would grab a cookie on the way out because why not? Um, but if you have a question that you really wanna ask, um, ask it, but get a cookie first, right? So I don't think there's anything else to do but just say, you're dismissed, go get a cookie, go get some coffee. If you wanna come back in, if you've got a question or if you wanna kinda hang and see if somebody else is gonna ask one, by all means, do so. Cool? Everybody cool with that? Okay, awesome. All right, let's do it. Cookie time. Subway cookies. Subway cookies. Yeah, they're, they're really good Subway cookies.